Greetings. This is Bible Time with Jane, and I am Jane, your host. We are continuing our series in the book of Acts, and today we will look at Acts chapter 7, verse 54, through chapter 8, verse 3. Stephen had been arrested and was giving his defense to the charges brought against him. We pick up his defense, and today we'll be beginning with verse 51, actually, to keep things in context, where Stephen said to the members of the Sanhedrin, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopping their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Stephen spoke boldly on that day fully knowing that this testimony would cost him dearly. And he did not shrink back from fulfilling the charge that his Lord had given him when Jesus said, You shall be my witnesses. Sometimes that message comes gently. But sometimes the testimony of truth must be done boldly and with consequence. This was one of those times. I'm reminded of the exhortation that is given in Hebrews chapter 10, where it is written, beginning with verse 32, but recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, 
Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So Stephen stood with confidence before his accusers and gave testimony to the murderer that they had committed. And actually, they had committed three murders in the space of three years. The first one was John the Baptist, when they allowed Herod to kill him. In allowing this, they sinned against God the Father, because God had called John and appointed him as a prophet of God. They had the authority to appeal for his release, but they did not. Therefore, they were guilty. The second murder was our Lord Jesus, when they actually conspired against him, going so far as to demand Pilate to have him crucified. In this they sinned against God the Son. Now they will rise up in their rage and rebellion and stone Stephen to death. And when they stoned Stephen, they sinned against God the Holy Spirit, who was working in and through the apostles and all of God's servants who were faithful to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, when these men heard Stephen's charge against them, they had had enough. I don't think Stephen had concluded his defense. But the truth that he was speaking was more than they could bear. They would not hear one more word. In their rage, they grabbed him, dragged him out of the city, gathered around him, and threw large stones at him until he was dead. What is interesting is the contrast between the members of the Sanhedrin and Stephen. These men were incensed with rage, hatred, and violence. They were beyond thinking and reason. All they could think of was getting rid of this man. However, look at Stephen and listen to what he said. He was calm, in control of himself as he placed his trust in Jesus. He continued to keep his gaze lifted up to heaven, choosing to fix his eyes on Jesus, the one who had redeemed him, instead of at the angry faces in front of him. So he prayed two significant prayers. First, he prayed that God would receive his spirit. This is a very similar prayer to that which Jesus prayed while he was on the cross. You remember? He prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Then, just before he died, Stephen prayed, Lord, 
Do not charge them with this sin. Again, this is similar to the prayer that Jesus prayed shortly before he died. Listen to the prayer of our Lord. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Stephen had learned well what it meant to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And even in his dying moments, he lived as a follower of Jesus. Dr. Warren Wearsby records the following conversation that challenged this event. He writes, A heckler once shouted to a street preacher, Why didn't God do something for Stephen when they were stoning him? The preacher replied, God did do something for Stephen. He gave him the grace to forgive his murderers and to pray for them. That is a perfect answer. Scripture records our Lord's response to the prayers of Stephen. And in fact, Stephen himself saw the unspoken response. Verses 55 and 56 tell us, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen saw Jesus in glory, and what he saw was significant for him and for all of God's faithful servants since then. What Stephen saw was Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Being at the right hand is a position of power and authority. But what is the most significant thing here is that Jesus was standing. This is unprecedented in Scripture. If you remember, after Jesus' resurrection, one of the last things he said to his disciples was that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. He reigns as king in heaven and king on earth. And always, he is pictured sitting. I'm going to uh, read for you uh, several verses from both the Old and New Testaments, which I think you will find very interesting. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, Psalm 110 is known as a messianic psalm. It's a prophetic psalm of Messiah, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sit at my right hand, the Lord says, until I make your enemies your footstool. This verse is quoted many times throughout the New Testament in reference to Jesus. Mark chapter 14, verse 62. And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Colossians 3, 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. 
He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power of by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Hebrews 10:12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 12:2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus says to the church, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So, to see Jesus standing at this point is significant. Many biblical scholars have concluded that Jesus stood to receive his martyred servant into glory. I especially like what Dr. F. F. Bruce observed when he wrote, Stephen had been confessing Jesus before men, and now he sees Christ confessing his servant before God. This is true. And it's in keeping with what Jesus had told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, where he said, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Very sobering words. And later, we read the promise of our Lord Jesus Christ to his church in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, when he said, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. How important it is to remain faithful to the end. How important it is to be a faithful witness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, God may not call you to be a martyr like Stephen was, but please remember that God does call each and every one of us to be living sacrifices as it says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, which reads this way, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now remember, a sacrifice is something that has been slaughtered. In Luke 9, Jesus said this, beginning with verse 23. 
Then Jesus said to them, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Never forget that the cross is an instrument of death. That is why in Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul declared, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so God's faithful servant Stephen died. F.F. Bruce observed that Stephen's death was an unexpectedly beautiful and peaceful description of so brutal a death. I think that is well said. Verse 58 of our passage mentions one of the Pharisees in their midst. His Hebrew name was Saul. Later we will come to know him by his Greek name, Paul. He was the rising star among the Pharisees, being taught by the noted Rabbi Gamaliel. In Philippians chapter 3, he described himself this way that he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. This was Paul before he encountered Jesus. And on that day, he stood in full agreement of the murder that was taking place before his very eyes. I like the observation that Warren Wearsby makes. He writes, as far as Saul was concerned, the death of Stephen eventually meant salvation. He never forgot the event. And no doubt Stephen's message, prayers, and glorious death were used of the Holy Spirit to prepare Saul for his own meeting with the Lord. God never wastes the blood of his saints. Saul would one day see the same glory that Stephen saw and would behold the Son of God and hear him speak. But on that day, and until Jesus revealed himself to him, Saul became the chief persecutor of the church. Let's read chapter 8, verses 1 through 3 again. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. 
And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Being familiar with Paul and the extraordinary ministry that he had after his conversion, we don't often think about who he was. But Paul never forgot. Listen to how he described himself when he defended himself to the people in Jerusalem at the time of his arrest before he was taken off to Rome. He said this in Acts chapter 22, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarshish of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you are all today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to, to, to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there in, to Jerusalem to be punished. Now it happened as I journeyed, and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. In Paul's life, we can clearly see the life-transforming work that Jesus makes in every believer's life. Do you remember your own life before Jesus revealed himself to you? Who were you then? Who are you now? Think about it. Our Lord is the Savior who transforms lives, making us new creations, even as the Bible promises in 2 Corinthians 5.17, where it is written, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is now your testimony. Who were you before Jesus saved you? How did Jesus reveal himself to you? What happened then? How has your life changed since then? I say to you, be his witness. Tell your story to whoever will hear it. Be bold. Be faithful. Well, I have just one last thought from our passage today. You will note that when Saul rose up to persecute the church, the church scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. At first, you might be tempted to despair, but like I've said before, nothing is ever wasted when it is put into the hands of God. And this is no exception. When the believers were scattered because of the severe persecution, 
They shared the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever they went. The result is that the church grew and the gospel message spread throughout the known world. And this was good. Good for them and good for you and me. Because we have come to know the testimony of Jesus because of those who have gone before us were faithful. Do you remember the words of Jesus on the day he ascended to heaven? He said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This was a command and not a suggestion. However, up until this time, they had remained in Jerusalem. God allowed this time of peace in order to establish a firm core group and leadership for the church, but the time had come for the spreading of the gospel. So he allowed the persecution so that they would go out in obedience to the command. And God succeeded. Not only do we have the testimony and the balance of the book of Acts as a witness to this, this spreading of the gospel, but let me read to you from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and I want you to notice who the recipients of the letter were. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification, sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you, and peace be multiplied. We can see from this introduction that it is clear that those who were dispersed due to persecution were faithful witnesses, and the church had grown throughout the world, north, south, east, and west. And this is still true today. We know that persecution continues to exist. And it will continue until the day that Jesus returns to set up his millennial kingdom. This is to be expected. But this should not stop us. Instead, it should inspire us to press on faithful witnesses until that day. One commentator made the following observation. Persecution forced the believers out of their homes in Jerusalem, but with them went the gospel. Sometimes we have to become uncomfortable before we'll move. We may not want to experience it, but discomfort may be the best thing for us because God may be working through our pain. When you are tempted to complain about uncomfortable or painful circumstances, stop and ask if God might be preparing you for a special task. I like the writer's perspective. I think it helps us to see God working in the midst of our suffering and struggles. When we allow Him to work all things together for good, we can then be encouraged, no matter how painful the trial may be. I have written in the front of my Bible, 
a quote from the missionary Adoniram Judson. I like to read it when I'm struggling to remind me of God's greater purpose in my own suffering. It reads this way. If we succeed without suffering, it is because others have suffered before us. If we suffer without success, it is that others may succeed after us. That quote has encouraged my heart so many times. Let me repeat it. If we succeed without suffering, it is because others have suffered before us. If we suffer without success, it is that others may succeed after us. Recently, I've added this prayer from Reverend George Matheson. Teach me the glory of my cross. Teach me the value of my thorn. Show me that I have climbed to thee by the path of pain. Show me that my tears have made my rainbows. I have learned that God is always faithful. I know this not just by faith, but through my own personal experiences and journey with him. You can trust him. No matter how difficult the struggle, no matter how painful the situation, God is working for good. Trust him. Cry out to him in prayer and trust him. He will always hear and answer the cries of his beloved ones. And remember to give him thanks, for he is good. His mercies are everlasting, and his truth truly does endure forever. Dear Lord, we thank you for the testimony of your faithful servant, Stephen. We thank you that he was bold in his witness, bold to speak about Jesus, bold to speak truth. And that message on that day was used by your Holy Spirit to touch the, the life of a young man named Saul, who you would later call into your service. And we know him as the Apostle Paul. And his life was an amazing testimony of what God can do through one person yielded to him. Lord, may we yield our lives before you, all of our life. May we yield to your call. May we yield to the challenge. May we yield to your love. Lord, take our lives and transform us. Make us into your faithful servants and into your faithful witnesses for the kingdom of God and for your glory. That the 
countless lives might be touched with the glorious message of Jesus, the one who lived and died and rose again, Savior of the world. Thank you for calling us into this glorious service. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, until next time, my friend, may you find your strength in our blessed Lord Jesus Christ, who is forever praised. And may he fill you with his peace and his power. God bless you, my friend.